Welcome. Welcome everyone to the National Library of Australia. I'm Cathy Pilgrim, Assistant Director General of the Engagement Branch here at the Library. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we meet today on the land of the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri people. I acknowledge Australia's First Nations peoples, the First Australians, as traditional owners and custodians of the land and give respect to their elders past and present and through them to all Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Thank you all for attending this afternoon's presentation by the Library's 2021 Creative Arts Fellow for Australian Writing. We are delighted to be able to deliver this fellowship presentation both here in the Library's theatre and online after a forced hiatus of over 12 months due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The annual Creative Arts Fellowship for Australian Writing is supported by the Ray Matthew and Ava Colesman Trust. Established through a generous bequest made to the library by New York Arts patron Ava Colesman in honour of the Australian poet, dramatist and writer Ray Matthew. The Trust supports Australian literary research and writing. This fellowship allows writers to develop their creative works by immersing themselves in the library's collections. Today we welcome Dr Geordie Alveston as our 2021 Creative Arts Fellow for Australian Writing. Geordie is a Melbourne poet who has published 12 full-length poetry collections and a handbook on poetic form. Two of her early collections were adapted for music theatre, both seasons at both enjoying seasons at the Sydney Opera House. Her work has been honoured by prizes, including the Mary Gilmore Award, the New South Wales Premier's Prize, and the 2019 Patrick White Literary Award for outstanding contribution to Australian literature. During her fellowship, Geordie has been examining the diaries of James Francis Hurley across two Antarctic expeditions, first under Mawson and then under Shackleton, and his subsequent picture show tour. And that's been researched with a view to creating a poetic, poetic mosaic of Hurley's experiences as a man and Antarctic photographer. Today, Geordie will share with us her research into these diaries, as well as a sample of the poems that she has written so far. Please join me in welcome, welcoming Dr. Geordie Alveston. Thanks, Cathy, and thank you to everyone for taking time out of what I'm sure is a busy afternoon for you all to come and hear this talk. Um, during the past three weeks here at the library, I have um, had a, a number of people who've come to me expressing their curiosity about documentary poetry as a genre and what it is. So I'd like to begin this presentation by talking about documentary poetry in general and my relationship to it before sharing some specifics regarding my current project. I'll start with a quote from the Czech poet Rainer Maria Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, in which Rilke advises the young poet on subject matter. Write about what your everyday life offers you. 
Describe your sorrows and desires, the thoughts that pass through your mind and your belief in some kind of beauty. Describe all these things with heartfelt, silent, humble sincerity. And when you express yourself, use the things around you, the images from your dreams and the objects that you remember. If your everyday life seems poor, don't blame it, blame yourself. Admit to yourself that you are not enough of a poet to call forth its riches. Because for the creator, there is no poverty and no poor in different place. And even if you found yourself in some prison whose walls let in none of the world's sounds, wouldn't you still have your childhood, that jewel beyond all price, that treasure house of memories? Turn your attention to it. Try to raise up the sunken feelings of this enormous past. I chose this quote because it highlights the potential breadth and depth of the individual imagination, as well as the nature of the past as a potent creative source. Although Rilke is talking about the past in the personal childhood sense, I believe his comments can be equally applied to the public historical past, and that, as writers, we can express our own particular sorrows, desires, thoughts and belief in some kind of beauty when we reach beyond our individual histories and tap into and respond to broader historical events in our work. I'm not sure that by turning to history we can dis discover more about the future, but I do believe that exploring historical events with an open and active imagination can help us connect with our collective past as a society, help us clarify and fortify ourselves as individual members of a mutual group, sharing some kind of organic human knowledge with which to face the future. To my mind, knowledge as a body is dead without imagination. Imagination is the blood that runs through the veins of the body of knowledge. Statistics, dates, facts tend to hold very little life of their own. And the imagination is a necessary adjunct to the intellect when engaging with history, as it is only with our own breath that we can respond to the lost life of the past. In this sense, it's an act of the imagination that is required in order to activate the intellect into creative, that is, living, understanding. There's an exchange that occurs when one turns to history in this way. The facts you take, the feelings you supply, the growth of comprehension and the outward communication that hopefully results. How does this exchange occur? by engaging heart and mind with your chosen subject matter, by both suspending disbelief in what has gone before and suspending belief in your own dominating ego. One must allow oneself to be moved, to feel the breath, to see the most trivial moments as moments in a life. As a writer often working in the realm of documentary poetry, I've been challenged and re-challenged by a number of issues over the years. For example, the role of nostalgia, 
which can be disruptive if one is merely looking to the past in order to confirm the often false tenets of the present. I've found I must be particularly careful when approaching a subject that invokes a nostalgic response in me, as this is when my own emotions can surreptitiously um, upend the apple cart. The role of truth is perennially problematic, raising questions such as whose truth, who has recorded this history and why, is truth experienced differently according to who you are, does truth transcend the usual dichotomies of class, gender and race, is one person's truth another person's folly and so on. It certainly seems true to me that if history repeats itself, it's because we repeat ourselves. Perhaps putting ourselves in another's position, walking a mile in another's shoes, will help us to apprehend and appreciate, learn, change, become better people, do less harm. I've always been drawn to history as a source of material from which to create poems. My first collection contained a number of poems and sequences redacted from archival materials. At the time of writing, and this was back in the early 1990s, I thought I was writing about other people's lives, but of course I was writing about myself. When I look over the subjects of that first book, Emily Dickinson, Frida Kahlo, Ahab, Frankenstein, I'm struck by the clear connection between me and them, and my writing is certainly not as objective as I then thought. Over time, I've come to accept that my work can never be totally objective, and that I exist in each and every poem despite its subject matter. I've even begun to enjoy this concept. With this realisation in mind, I approached my second collection, Botany Bay Document, which is subtitled A Poetic History of the Women of Botany Bay. For six months, I devoured pertinent letters, diaries, maps, ship logs, and so on, foraging for traces of the women who had come to Australia, either as convicts or by their own free will, during the first 25 years of white settlement. As well, I received a grant to visit Sydney and thereby immerse myself in the Mitchell Library, along with extant places of relevance. Of course, there's nothing new about documentary poetry, as the works of Homer, Ovid and countless others attest. But it was important for me to realise how much of my own past was being accessed while studying supposedly outside historical events. In fact, I saw this as a revelation. I could adopt other personas as a foil for my own, write about everything I felt I could not or did not want to express with that enormous eye comfortably and conveniently concealed within the vehicle of another person's identity. In this sense, Arrogating an historical persona can be seen as a metaphor for oneself that may be sustained over a poem or even a whole collection. Here's a poem from Botany Bay Document inspired by a visit to Hyde Park Barracks in 1995. The ground level floorboards had been recently lifted and on display was a huge assortment of clay pipes Everybody smoked, even children. There were over 5,000 pipes. 
as well as cutlery, keys and other items that had fallen or been pushed through the floor's cracks. I was particularly taken by the collection of tampons. Obviously these were not invented by Carefree or Meds a mere handful of, uh, of decades back, but were being fashioned by women and girls at least two centuries ago for their personal use. Regarding these curious items, I was struck by the thought that if this discovery had been made too much earlier, the tampon tampons almost certainly would have been discarded as rubbish. And I was acutely aware that this was a piece of women's history I was very fortunate to view. Many adolescent girls, the youngest only 11 years old, were transported to Australia without their families for committing an array of trivial crimes. With this poem, I wanted to access some of the feelings I experienced when my own period started in the early 1970s, how embarrassed and confused I felt. I also wanted to imagine the same situation in colonial times, girls suffering separation from family and friends, tearing up the few garments they possessed into pieces of cloth which they formed into tampons and later poked through the floorboards for disposal. <coughs> Moonfish. In my stiff canvas cot between Catherine and Sarah, I stare out at the Port Jackson night. A different moon looms above North Dorset Downs, and I'm sickened within to be hid from its thin Moorish light. A 12-year-old coiner when the Midas hove to, 13 when it ceased all its sailing, I am become a woman in sad Sydney Cove, with no companion or kin to comfort me in the misery of my secret ailing. The tide inside is timely turning, the fish in me are hauling heavy through the hellish bone, and in the, eye, in the sky my mother's eye trails its counsel over my plight in the warp and weft of fine cloud. While Sarah stirs in her Aberdeen dream and Cathy sighs somewhere near Suffolk, I'm learning shame in crimson waves that seek to drag me under. My petticoat is ripped to bits, so too my old neckerchief, and the linen shift I was issued with barely exists at all. I arise once more to stall the flood on a twist of worsted rag, and stuff the old stain through the boards where rats nest in my blood. As birds bring in a southern dawn to shut off my mother's stare, my thighs dry stiff with moonfish that have drowned in foreign air. With my next collection, The Hanging of Jean Lee, I wanted to concentrate on one woman alone. I searched a long time in order to find the right subject for my writing, and it was during this search that I realised I was looking backwards for parts of myself. I chose the story of Jean Lee precisely because it was so unknown at the time of writing, back in 1997. It seemed everyone had heard about Ronald Ryan, the last man hanged in Australia, which was 1967. But who had heard of Jean Lee, one of only five women ever hanged in this country and the only one to be executed in the 20th century? Which year did she die? 
only 1951, a few short decades before I wrote those poems in Pentridge Prison, Victoria. My intellect told me this is a story that must be told, while my imagination told me this woman is like me in so many ways. That is when the pot starts melting and poetry sometimes happens, when you feel your own core blink with recognition and begin to write. Research for this collection involved the usual intensive survey of archival documents, the one extent school report, police records and court trial transcripts retrieved from the Freedom of Information Act, um, newspaper reportage, the voices of 1930s and 40s radio, as well as more personal experiences like visiting H Division in Pentridge, being actually locked in the cell um, where Jean was kept in solitary confinement and running my, ho my hands over the grooves, the rope grooves in the actual hanging beam. Due to the media's sensational treatment of the case, I chose to organise my poems into four newspaper-like segments, personal pages, entertainment section, crime supplement and death notices. I also supplied a chronology of events at the beginning. The title, The Hanging of Jean Lee, was selected precisely for the purpose of letting the reader know what happens at the end of the book, thus allowing proceedings to unfold within maximum imaginative space without the overriding impediment of the reader wondering, I wonder what's going to happen. Although Jean Lee was accomplice to a cruel mur murder, she was only an accomplice, and after three miscarriages of justice during the various trials, she was sentenced to hang along with the two actual male culprits. Think about the time. The murder occurred in 1949, soon after World War II, an epoch during which women came into much greater independence, holding down jobs and helping keep everything going while their menfolk fought. Jean Lee herself was a prostitute, a petty thief, and a single mother, not the desired post-war model the government in power wanted for white Australian women during the aftermath of 1945. Many scholars agree that in this respect, Jean Lee was something of a scapegoat, an example to be held up to all those other women who have, may have become too confident and sassy during the war years a message to get back into the kitchen and rattle things. And so she was hanged. But what of her story? Jean left no journal or diary, wrote to nobody, and was visited by nobody in her solitary confinement apart from prison officials. I wanted to tell her story, but I also wanted to express my own aloneness, my own downfall, if you like, my story. While I've never been a prostitute or an accomplice to murder, I have experienced my own mistakes and misunderstandings, my own solitary confinement, and I found many instances where I felt, or I felt I felt, Jean's presence over one of my shoulders as I wrote. Following the hanging of Jean Lee, um, I left documentary poetry alone for a few years in order to focus on my other preoccupation, the mathematics of poetic form. It wasn't until 2013 that I returned to the genre with the Book of Ethel. This collection comprises micro-portraits of my own maternal great-grandmother, who emigrated from St Just in Cornwall to Australia in 1872 at the age of 15. 
Beginning married life in a one-room tin shack outside Mildura, she married a Methodist minister and lived until 1949, moving house frequently and raising six children along the way. The poetry here is formal and concise, employing a strict external and internal rhyme scheme. Each poem comprises a seven-line stanza and each line contains seven syllables. With a plethora of family documents and realia at hand, along with the privilege of a writer's residency in Cornwall, which allowed me that holy grail, a witness of place, I sought to accord Ethel her own voice while exploring the tensions between high poetic artifice and the smaller moments of an ordinary life. A number of Cornish words found their way into the poems and I provided a glossary at the back of the book. Again, it was several years and a few further books before I came back to documentary poetry with a collection called War Lines. In 2017, I received a fellowship similar to the one I'm working under here at the State Library of Victoria. My project there was the redaction of letters written home by World War I Victorian soldiers into poetry. As is the way with all documentary work, much pre-poetry footwork was required. The reading of hundreds of letters, the selection process, which involved multiple factors such as a soldier's rank, voice, literacy, story, as well as his eventual fate, the choice of which poetic structures to employ, copyright issues, etc. The poems are formatted as letter blocks, justified on both right and left sides. However, many closed forms are contained within these visual blocks, from the Pantoum, Villanelle and Sistina to the Palindrome, Sonnet and Hymn. A further constraint I set myself was that I employ none of my own words, thus restricting the poems to a kind of literary mosaic of each soldier's individual correspondence. Sometimes this meant conflating many letters into one poem. At other times, a soldier may have penned only a couple of letters or postcards home. In this sense, apart from the final piece in the book, War Lines is a collection of found poems. While intricate decisions were necessitated regarding each of the 70 or so poems I constructed, an overall narrative arc had to be considered as well. On publication, this collection received positive and passionate reviews, it being the centenary of the ending of World War I, and was noted as one of the Australian Book Review 2018 Books of the Year. And now I'd like to talk briefly about my current project here at the National Library. Most people will have encountered at some point the spectacular black and white Antarctic photographs of Frank Hurley, even if they don't know his name and I'll show you some of those now. Uh, the, the first few pictures are from the Mawson exhibition, uh, expedition, which occurred between 1911 and 1912. This is a picture of a, a blizzard. It was very hard to walk through these blizzards. Sometimes the wind blew at over 100 miles an hour. Very hard to take a photograph in those conditions as well. This is an ice cave, uh, and you can see the uh, refraction of light uh, into this space. Don't forget, people had never seen photographs like this before. 
It was a whole new magical world. This is an ice wall or an ice cliff off Adelie Land. This is a picture of one of the crew, the meteorologist, um, with his Burberry all iced in around his face. Uh, this is taken on Macquarie Island. That's a group of royal penguins, and you can see the, the two men um, to give you a bit of um, size comparison. Um, this one's called Three Lonely Strays Find a Lost Brother After a Blizzard, and you can see um, how full of ice the lost brother is. And this is the rare Ross seal. They're only found in the Ross Sea, which is a, quite a small bay. Um, usually uh, when we hear about seals in, in these diaries, it'll be the Weddell seal or the crab eater seal or a different kind. This is inside one of the huts with um, Beige at his sewing machine down in the corner. This is an ice wall. Um, this is when uh, the Mawson expedition were looking for somewhere to land and went on for miles and miles and miles without being able to land. Now this is from the Shackleton expedition and this is when they, after waiting for five months living under upturned boats for rescue, um, they finally see that ship on the horizon and kindle a fire um, using seal skins and blubber. This last slide is a turreted iceberg, which um, is the photograph that I've chosen um, for the cover of my book, which hopefully will be published at some point. And there's a mock-up of the cover. So, Hurley was an Australian adventurer and photographer who accompanied both Mawson and Shackleton on separate expeditions to Antarctica in the early 20th century at the end of the heroic age of exploration. His photos are the first to record the incredible icebergs, snowscapes and wildlife of the region, as well as capturing the work and lives of his crew and comrades. Hurley was also an avid diarist, and it is these writings that I'm here to decipher, imbibe, and eventually transmogrify into the realm of poetry. My project is entitled Frank, and subtitled Hurley in Antarctica. I like the mono-word title uh, as it functions as both name and descriptive at once, because he was a very frank writer. The poetry here is divided into three sections, each section derived from a different diary. First, the sledging diary detailing the Australasian Antarctic Mawson expedition, 1912 to 13. Second, the Imperial Transantarctic Shackleton expedition diary of 1914 to 16. And third, the touring diary um, of the Shackleton picture show called In the Grip of the Polar Pack Ice, which screened across Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide and Brisbane during 1919 and 20. As with war lines, these poems contain none of my own words. What I'm doing is taking phrases, fragments and images and collocating them under the pressure of poetic form in order to create something new. I was drawn to this material for a number of reasons, not least the concept of entering a place totally new totally alien and almost totally white. This in itself triggered a heavy and elaborate response in me, the chance of a, a kind of crossing over into an expanse of, 
of seeming endlessness and seemingly psychological silence, which I felt impelled to further interrogate. Then there were the key notions of survival, endurance, discovery, spectacle and awe. These expeditions to the far south seemed to reverberate not only at the manifest and obvious historical level, but at a deeply human one as well. Hurley's pictures and writings transport us swiftly to the hub of what it means to live. Hardship and perseverance, tolerance and cooperation, friendship and sustenance, vision, honest toil, and the hope of some sense of reward at the eventual end of that toil. Also, of course, an encounter with the natural world and its wildlife in a hitherto unmapped and unexplored, that is to say, unknown context. The sad fact that the Antarctic is altering and diminishing beneath the barrage of global warming as I speak provided yet another layer of heat to the task. I had already completed the first Mawson section prior to applying for this NLA fellowship. Here the poems are format, formatted as run-on um, justified blocks with their relevant journal dates as titles. Each poem represents a sort of tapestry of that particular original diary entry of Hurley, complete with misspellings, crossings out and grammatical peccadilloes. And each poem is compressed and figured according to the musical precepts of poetry, in particular, in this case, rhythm and internal rhyme. The poem I'd like to read now is a pantoum, which is a class of chained verse involving a specific um, pattern of line, line repetition. As with all the Frank poems, the schema is sparse and dashes and lacunae, or spaces, are employed in place of punctuation. The poem is simply titled November 16, 1912. <coughs> what a stagnant silence. Our ears so accustomed to continuous din ache. What a striking contrast to the blizzard's eternal roar. What a place of excesses. Our ears so accustomed to continuous din ache. Bob has ordered supports to throw snow onto tent to make some noise. What a place of excesses. Every sound seems frozen. Bob has ordered supports to make some noise so we can go to sleep. Our tent limp for not the gentlest zephyr stirs. Every sound seems frozen. What is going to happen? Our tent limp and not the gentlest zephyr stirs. What a contrast to the blizzard roar. What is going to happen? What a stagnant silence. The second Shackleton section is more complex than the first Mawson section as Hurley's diary of this expedition is much longer than the previous, therefore requiring more aggressive, more meticulous organisational techniques. So for this section, I've decided to code the primary source material according to six principal and recurring motifs, a day, a night, a month, a vista, 
a note and a snap. Examples of note poems include a note about dogs, a note about hunting, a note about ice, and so on. And these poems will involve pecking like a magpie all through the huge two-volume diary for suitable fragments. Similarly, the Vista poems will explore subjects such as um, a vista of Elephant Island, a vista of pressure, a vista of Sir E, E being Ernest Shackleton. The snap poems will pertain to specific photographs or lantern slides or the process of photography itself. itself. I'd like to read a piece now, which is one of many called A Note, and you can see the format that I'm using. A note about seals. They emerge from junctions or cracks in the flow to sun themselves lazily in the warm lee of the hummocks and to sleep off the somniferous effects of overfeeding. One may sit and study them from but a few yards distance when they will gaze drowsily at you, stretch and yawn luxuriously and fall off to sleep again. Ashore, the Weddell is the most phlegmatic creature I know of. His very shape, resembling a gigantic slug, suggests sloth and lassitude, but the water is his element, and I have watched him gliding superbly or sporting in the leads, the perfection of sinuous grace. Poor creature, how unfortunate for you that your flesh is so excellent and your blubber burns so well. My fellowship here is specially crucial to the third section, that of the tour diary, as Hurley's original diary exists in handwritten form only. In addition, his chirography is often in pencil and barely legible. My initial fortnight here at the library was spent transcribing this material to computer. And these two weeks proved critical to me as a poet as much is communicated by handwriting as an object in itself. Climate, haste, leisure, stress, excitement, fatigue, it's all there in the handwriting, even alcohol. And the writer's mood is far more readily, readily detected than, than in its typescript counterpart. As a result, I've found poems arriving in the very act of transcription, which is always magic. This final section of my project is the most complicated of the three. In it, I intend utilising fragments and phrases from the tour diary while interspersing these with metaphorically germane fragments from the diary concerning the Shackleton expedition itself. Sorry, to be clear, the touring diary is a touring picture show of pictures from the Shackleton expedition, not the Mawson. So I'll be interspersing the touring diary notes with um, fragments from the Shackleton diary. Um, I plan to arrange this material into approximately 16 long poems with titles relating both to the world of theatrical film and to the Antarctic. For example, scenery, season, soliloquy, refreshments, interlude, accompaniment, finale. While I'm yet to begin these poems, I already anticipate the writing as a personal work of joy. 
It can be arduous and unpredictable work using recorded history as a springboard for one's own imagination. Researching the past and recycling it involves the melding of one's present self and all those past selves, however they're perceived. Maybe it's all we can do as poets, as writers, to create a personal kind of order out of the overwhelming rush of information we're presented with during our time on this earth. We're each unique beings, but we are also the product to a large extent of what has gone on before. As Rilke points out, we always have our own childhoods, our individual pasts, as an enormous source of material for poetry. Yet Rilke lived in a different culture and a different time. Perhaps the present state of the world environment, of the planet itself and of its inhabitants, lends a greater urgency to the enterprise of rewriting history as an act of the imagination. As COVID continues its march across the world, along with countless other marches just as urgent, just as tragic, what have we learned about the role of history in our creative lives? It's easy to maintain an attitude of denial. That was then, this is now, they're all dead, we're alive, that's all that matters. It may be more tricky to open ourselves to our collective past, but in order to move closer and without trepidation toward an increasingly global community and within increasing multiple threats to our very existence as a species, let alone as writers, we need to exercise both our intellects and our imaginations in tandem. So thank you very much for listening and I'm happy to take any questions you may have. Thank you very much, Geordie, for that, um, for sharing, for My sharing pleasure. your process, for sharing your experience here at the library and looking at these collections. We are going to open up to the audience for questions, and I'll ask that the audience use the microphone because we are recording this session. So while colleagues here are thinking about questions, if I may jump in and ask one myself, just about your creative process. You talked about being in space and place um, in writing for your first two publications. So it being in the Hyde Park barracks, being able to go to um, Pentridge Prison and be in that physical space. Mm. How does that impact your creative process in comparison with writing about World War One, with writing about Antarctica? And I'm making an assumption here that you haven't been to um, those physical spaces yeah. and places. Yeah. So is there an influence there that being in an environment influences the creative process that you follow? Yeah, it, that's a fantastic question and um, as I mentioned in my talk, a witness of place is incredibly useful um, because you, you come to a subject with the facts that you research, that you read uh, and a lot of your own assumptions. So for example, with the book of Ethel, um, before I received a grant to go to Cornwall, I started the poems um, just based on letters and family things that I had. And I wrote this poem about Christmas in Cornwall in the snow. And it wasn't until I went to Cornwall that I was informed it never snows there. In fact, it's almost tropical, which 
I just thought all of England was snowy at Christmas time, that kind of thing. Um, and it was so important to hear the accents of people, hear what nature felt like there, uh, taste the food, all sorts of things. The same with Jean Lee. I don't think I could have read, written the solitary poems without having been locked in there. It was so dark and cold, the walls are made of stone, and that hanging beam, um, it was incredible to be able to touch it. Uh, so when it came to things like the war, um, there is a lot of footage. Um, and because the, I was looking at letters that the soldiers had written home, they were normally writing to a mother or a sister or a daughter, often to a female. And so I think just being a woman helped me a little bit to be able to imagine those situations. When we come to Frank, I did investigate the possibility of um, going for a creative uh, residency in the Antarctic. They do run them, but they're open internationally, not just to Australia, and they're incredibly hard to get. Um, you're up against scientists who want to um, record whale song under the ocean and turn it into a symphony, painters. It's not just the writing genre, it's across everything. And also with my communications with those people, they said the earliest would be 2023. So it just didn't kind of fit. And I thought, oh, it would mean so much to go there. Um, but the library here has such a great holding of over 10,000 um, lantern slides and photographs of his that I just thought, look, I'm going to dive into them, kind of like Mary Poppins diving into the pavement pictures and see what I can do. Mind you, because I'm not using any of my own words, I only had to kind of supply emotion and poetic intellect because it was more about um, bringing out the poetic parts of what Frank had already written and then finding ways that I could uh, rhyme this word with that word. and So it was more like a mathematical puzzle that I had to solve writing these poems. Does that answer the question? It does, it does. Thank you very much. Mm. Okay. I'm going to open up to the audience if we have any questions today. Hello, thank you so much for that, John. I've really enjoyed hearing about your process. Can you just explain how you actually choose Sorry, can you just explain how you actually select who you're going to write about? Um, I don't really. They, it sounds a bit twee, but I think they choose me. Um, my first documentary collection, the, the Women of Botany Bay, that was actually going to be my PhD. Um, and so I'd already bought a whole lot of books about it, which sat above my desk. And then I changed my mind and wrote my PhD about something else. And I was just sitting at my desk one day wondering, what am I going to write? Because my problem is content. I'm a structuralist. I'm a formalist. So I always know what kind of poem I want to write. But then the problem is, what am I going to write about? Most poets are the opposite, that they know what they want to write about, and then they have to figure out how to write it. So, you know, have to be different. Um, so that's how it happened with the first book and I actually just enjoyed 
writing it so much about all these different women that I made a conscious choice then that I wanted to write about one woman. And that was tricky because I had to find a woman who wasn't too much in the public domain and everyone knew everything about her, but also a woman that had enough information about her to support a book-length thing. So that's how I found Jean. Um, with Ethel, she was my great-grandmother and there was just stuff around the house and again I didn't know what to write about so I just thought, oh, that'll do. And um, with Warlines, um, it was the centenary um, and there was a, a special uh, residency offered at the SLV down in Victoria that they only ran for four years, which was the Centenary Writers' Fellowship. And I, so I just thought, oh, I'll go for that. Um, all right, so it's the war. And that's how the war happened. And then with Frank, um, my husband here just loves Frank's photographs, so I've been seeing them around the place for a long time and bought him some books on Frank. and. We've been watching, we'd watched a series on Shackleton and Mawson and again it just kind of happened. So I'm sorry I can't be more specific but I guess I'm a bit like, you know, I just wait for something to knock on my door and, and sometimes nothing does and I think, oh well, that's my career finished. Um, it might take a while and other times there's three things knocking at the door and I have to give out tickets and wait in line, you know. Um, thanks so much for your talk. Um, as someone who's also read through the Hurley Diaries and had many um, emotions uh, reading through them, I remember in particular the bit where they're joking about who they'll eat first. Um, the dogs? Uh, all the people, I think, as well. Um, but they did eat the dogs. Um, that, I think, struck me a lot at the time. And I wonder what part of the diaries gave you the biggest emotional surprise or reaction? Oh, um, I guess the killing of the dogs, um, because you really get to know the dogs through the diaries. Um, you get to know their names, especially Frank's own team, the leader of which or whom was Shakespeare. Uh, and these dogs are just fantastic. Um, they're, they're friends to the men because the men have been stuck on an ice floe for five months. They've also been stuck on, on the ship in ice for another seven months. The whole thing, you know, and then on a gravelly beach for another six months. The, the dogs were their friends, their warmth. They were all different. They didn't all look the same like huskies. They all had a real personality, you know, this one kind of slacks off if you don't keep on him. This one's great for finding a way home in the particular uh, pea soup drift. You really do get to know them. And when they were running so short of food, um, because the sealing season was over and the seals had migrated, and they needed a lot of meat to feed the 80 dogs as well, um, it was going to kind of, pardon the, the, the phrase, kill two birds with one stone to to shoot the dogs because then they didn't need to feed them and they would have their, be able to eat the dogs. And Frank, I know, is very sad about this when he writes, but he always tries to put a, 
a funny, witty spin on things. And that's when you can tell when he's the most upset, actually. So he's talking about when the dogs are being cooked and the owner of each dog is leaning over the pot watching their own bit and telling the cook not to mix up Nelson with, you know, another dog. Um, you know, I don't want to eat your dog. And they're all trying to make light of it. And, and then they eat them and they're all sitting around very quietly um, until one of them says, oh, this is the best thing I've ever eaten because it was like ambrosia after eating, um, you know, seal blubber for so long. Um, so that stuck in my mind, being a, a dog lover. And I guess the other thing is the awe. He, he writes very poetically about the landscape with new eyes. He's a really good uh, diarist, as you would know, as good a diarist as a photographer and the awe stays with me. Thank you. I, I missed the first half, unfortunately, So, but it sounds like the most wonderful uh, project and interpretation. Um, I've got a bit of a background in Hurley. I'm not aware of anyone having ever even drawn attention to the literary or poetic quality of Frank's writing, even though so many people have used the diaries yeah. and so forth. Mm. Um, it's just interesting that it's been staring us in the face and yet no yeah. one except before you, as far as I know, has actually ever even lighted on that perception of him, I suppose, as a more sensitive man yes. uh, than he's, he's often presented. Because we know he's a bit racist and... Um... He's often presented somewhat condescendingly, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with class. Um, well, I think he was very young on, on these well, he was, these expeditions, and to do things like dive repeatedly into six foot of mushy ice to retrieve his photographic records after the endurance got crushed in the ice, you can imagine what that was like. Mm. And he was also a genius at um, making things. Mm. He's the one that set up the wireless radio and fixed things and made stoves, and if there was ever a problem, they went to Hurley. He kind of talked his way onto the Mawson expedition. He wasn't wanted, and he just forced himself on to poor Mawson, but he made such beautiful pictures that um, when Shackleton sold the film rights to help raise money for his expedition, he sold film rights in advance. Uh, he was given £10,000, but only on the condition that he take that fellow Hurley. Yeah. <laughs> but I like what you're saying, and I, I feel that's a part of my brief uh, mm. as a documentary poet, is to find things Fantastic. and bring them to a different audience, you know. The same with The Hanging of Jean Lee. Probably all of you here have heard of Jean Lee, um, but I'd wager back in 1997 you hadn't. She just wasn't talked about. And after I wrote my book, it was turned first into a one-woman play, and then into um, an opera. And that all got reviews and things because the musicians were people like Deborah Conway and Hugo Race and Mark Seymour, so it got put onto CD. And all these things on different kind of platforms helped the story to 
to come to life. And it's important because we'd all heard of Ronald Ryan, even when we were children, but not Jean Lee. Um, so I always try to do that in my work, kind Fantastic. of find the dusty corner that no one has shone a light into. Could I just add um, a congratulations to the National Library, but also it's consistent with the state public libraries. Over the past 20 years, their inclusiveness of opening up the collections to the work of a variety of scholars, but also I've been terribly impressed by the imagination of also opening up the collections to an interdisciplinary and also a poetic and artistic and literary interpreters yeah. quite outside the square of, oh, okay, it's war history, we have to have a war historian. Yeah. Uh, I wish a lot more cultural institutions would follow this example because I think the fellowship programs at the major state libraries and this library have been an absolutely excellent innovation yeah. and I think they should be totally Beautifully said, and I know the director it. of the library is here, as is Sharon O'Brien, who runs the, the fellowship program, and th there are a few other uh, staff members here who would really appreciate what you've said, and I agree with every word of it. Libraries have come a long way since just being a place where you borrowed a book and returned it. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for this afternoon. So please, again, thank Dr Geordie Alberston for her presentation today. Thank you. Just to note that I hope you might be able to join us for our next fellowship presentation on Tuesday the 13th of April at 6pm when the 2020 National Folk Fellow, Luke Burns, accompanied by the Big Scrub Revival Band, will deliver a musical presentation on the folk music and folklore of the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. So I hope you can join us then. I'd also like to acknowledge our patrons and supporters who fund our fellowships. Um, it's without that support we wouldn't be able to present the quality and the calibre and the diversity of um, fellows that we have here at the library. So thank you.